Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help, like right now. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with their app, which is just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Hey guys, uh, before I get into the podcast that I did with Chris Yang last night, I'm going to get into the passing of Floyd Cardos, the great chef. Um, you know, Priya Krishna texted me this morning at like 8.30 and said that Floyd Cardos had passed. And I was hoping to God it was not true. And then I asked, how? Was it the coronavirus? And she said, yes. And it was one of those moments where I was hoping it was, literally I was sleeping and it was a bad dream. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't know, Floyd Cardo's one of the best chefs out there. And, uh, instrumental figure in American dining in terms of the flavors he introduced, teaching a whole generation of cooks at Les Panas, the importance of flavors and spices and herbs that he never had, Indian flavors. And um, he was the chef de cuisine at Les Panas under Greg Kuntz, the late Greg Kuntz who recently passed himself. And Les Panas was unequivocally one of the top one, two, or three restaurants in American history, as far as I'm concerned, both under Gray and then later under Christian Deluvier. But all credit to Chef Kuntz for allowing Floyd to put his fingerprints on bringing flavors from India, merged with French technique, and doing it in a way that was really seamless. And I never got to work directly for Floyd, but having worked for Andrew Carmelini at Cafe Balloud and Andrew Carmelini, who worked under Floyd at Les Panas, I was introduced to flavors that I had never experienced before. And uh, it was certainly a direct influence from Chef Floyd himself. And, um, you know, the fact that Floyd passed is still something I'm, I'm, it, this is just literally an hour and a half later, and um, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, and also simultaneously understanding the thousands of people that have passed from COVID-19 already, and it just so happens that Floyd was a well-known figure, uh, and there's plenty of people that are dying from this terrible virus that are just as meaningful to everyone else, but... For Floyd and people in the restaurant industry, this is personal now. It's very personal. Um, you know, I wish his family and his sons the best, sending my condolences, as I know everyone else is. 
it's tough. This whole thing has been tough. And um, they always say people are nice guys in this business or nice women in this business. But Floyd was unequivocally one of the nicest and kindest souls. And after he left Lespinaz, Danny Meyer gave him the opportunity to open up Tabla, which was adjacent to 11 Madison Square Park in the late 90s. I don't remember exactly when it opened, but Red Bar was the more casual restaurant downstairs. And that was one of my favorite restaurants in all of New York. And they had this amazing patio outside where you get drinks. And uh, it was great because if you had friends that worked on a Union Square hospitality group, you could take your pool, your dining vouchers, and you could get, you know, all this beautiful non and delicious food that Floyd made and drink it with the great cocktails they had. And I ate upstairs a couple times. The first time I ever had rabbit in my life was at Floyd's upstairs tabla that had three stars, New York times. And he was a trailblazing chef because that restaurant, it was amazing. And kudos to Danny and Union Square for allowing that restaurant to happen. And it's unfortunate that it's no longer with us and it closed because it had a good run but it produced a lot of great people. Chef Dan Kluger worked under Floyd for many years. Will Gadara, I know, was really close to Floyd. Um, so that's hard because I know how much they loved each other. And I just feel so bad. I feel terrible because he was truly, truly beloved. And... He was a, a big supporter of my career. Um, he was a big supporter of my career. And he used to come in all the time. And his sons are older now. I think one's graduated from college. But we're talking 15 years ago. They were like four and seven. And they would come in on... Floyd's day off, almost religiously, and they'd eat a big bowl of tripe and pork buns. And um, I was always amazed because Floyd was a legend, you know? Amongst chefs of a certain generation, Floyd was in the pantheon of highly influential chefs that changed the game. And um, he would drive in from New Jersey for work, and then after a top look closed, he opened up North End Grill. And then he opened up, I can't remember the first name of the restaurant, but it turned into Bombay Bread Bar. And we filmed Ugly Delicious there. Unfortunately, it got cut out because of editing reasons, but there was a roundtable discussion there. And uh, I very much wanted to promote, help promote Floyd as much as possible because his food has always been delicious. And I just was always upset that Maybe he didn't get the coverage he deserved or the recognition he deserved, but that's not also true because he got plenty of recognition from his peer group. And, um, you know, he was opening up restaurants in India, Bombay Canteen, and another restaurant that was focused on the cuisine of Goa. Terrific restaurants. And we filmed there as well. And I wanted Floyd to have the best opportunity to sort of get his name out there because, I, for one, never underestimated his importance or didn't realize that, like, so many of us cook the way we do because of his influence 
at his time at L'Espinaz and the Tabla and the generations of chefs that he helped train. And you just have to look at the people that have worked under him. They're all really good people. That's a testament of the chef, you know, solid moral backbones. And you're going to be Miss Floyd. I, I just, I just, I'm at a loss for words. And I'm, I'm, I just still don't want to believe it. Uh, I'm still trying to understand how this feels for everyone else that are going to lose someone to coronavirus. And, you know, I, that's the saying right now. You may not die from coronavirus, but you may know someone that will pass from coronavirus. And that is certainly, unfortunately, the case right now. And uh, I was really hoping that he could have this new growth in his career, expanding and opening up restaurants. And he was traveling so much. I mean, he was flying to Mumbai a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think he said that he maybe possibly contracted that coming back from Germany. I don't know. And, um, you know, I'm happy that we got to feature him on our TV show. And it's a nice memory because I think the world gets to see the kindness and expertise and just his general affable nature. And uh, it's how I want to remember him. And, uh, you know, Floyd, and to your family, my deepest condolences, and to the alumni that worked under you. Uh, even though I never worked for Floyd, I'm, I'm going to do my best to carry on his legacy. And I'm sorry, I got so emotional talking about this, but I, I just didn't think it would be right if uh, we started this podcast without talking about it. Um, so there you go. How are you guys coping over there? How's Grace and Hugo? I don't know. Just like, Hugo doesn't give a shit. He's having a, a, a time of his life. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be like the general thing with, with kids right now. They're like, oh, spring break started three weeks early? Cool. <laughs> like, and it lasts for six months? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And they just like don't ask questions because they're afraid of ruining it. They're just like, oh, uh, this is good. My daughter keeps on being like, uh, we're just going to keep staying here at grandma and grandpa's, right? And I'm like, I, I guess so forever now. Um, well, I guess we started the podcast then. Yeah. Uh, well, let, let's just do the proper intro. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. I'm joined with Chris Yang, who is calling from the San Francisco area. And um, we're teleconferencing and <laughs> recording this. Once again, I tried to do this podcast solo so many times, probably 15, 16 times. And about four hours ago, I thought I nailed it. I finally got a solo pod. It was about, I thought about just under an hour. And I was like, oh my God, everything sort of made sense. I, to me, it was the best version, very stoked. And right when I opened up my phone to see how long the recording time was, it was zero, 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 zero. <laughs> and I had forgotten to press record like a total asshole 
And I, I texted Chris being like, I don't know if I can continue uh, with my life right now. <laughs> I need help because I can't record this fucking podcast again. And uh, Chris Yang decided to help me out and do the podcast with me. And I think that Chris is just going to continue to be a recurring guest. And if you don't know who Chris Yang is, he is one of the founders of Lucky Peach and is my partner in Major Demo Media. And... Um, we're trying to do a lot of different things, and one of the things we are going to attempt to do is to increase the frequency of a podcast of the Dave Chang Show. In the earlier part of the week, we're going to probably try to do at least an attempt to do a solo podcast, or probably it'll just turn into me and Chris, because I suck at the solo podcast, because it's a weird, difficult task to do, challenge. And in the second half of the week, we're going to try to get a guest, other chefs, and do the normal Dave Chang Show podcast via teleconference. And also, in addition, whether that's a recurring change in the episodes or maybe even a third podcast a week, because you know we are overly ambitious in this uh, downtime, is to release some of the ideas that we've been mulling over. We want to do the unwatchables. That's something we want to do a long time. It might be the lowest rated podcast in history. <laughs> Explain the the unwatchables, Dave. Explain briefly what your idea for the unwatchables is. So it's very easy. There's the rewatchables. They have movies, and then I don't know. The Ringer's got a bunch of like cultural TV things, and they analyze like the great movies, the things that you they you know whatever TV shows, binge mode, whatever, whatever. All good. I, I love them, but they don't really cover the movies that I care about, <laughs> which are. Uh, best of the best. <laughs> Remo Williams. Yeah. Like, even like random shit, like Romancing the Stone with yeah. Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. Just movies that I grew up watching that are really bad, but very good. <laughs> and I, I think it would be interesting to look at these as sort of uh, artifacts of culture before anyone gave a shit about being politically correct or, or anything, right? Like, um, you know, we could do some greats. Like, or maybe we can do the unwatchable. Like, Breakfast and Tiffany's, to me, is an unwatchable. <laughs> it's true. I mean, the, the funny thing, Chang, that, you know, I think there's, like, a, on one level, it's just funny to watch some of these, like, very, very bad movies. But, like, it's funny to go back and see some of the things that you and I watched as kids that have so many crazy racist Asian stereotypes that we were just like, oh, this is hilarious. I'm really into this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many white guys played Asian guys to me is insane. Um, but there's so many good, bad movies. It escapes me. And like, yeah, so we'll do the unwatchables. Because why not? What We got time. Uh, whether the economy starts in three weeks or three months, this is something that we've wanted to do. And I think it's just going to force us to do it because we're going to quadruple time podcasts we want to do some version i think maybe the show's called i'm your majordomo and that really is like i'm majordomo means like i'm going to tell you what's good and that's going to be sort of a cross-cultural analysis of things from travel or lack thereof these days <laughs> to um things that we think you should be interested in you know sort of like a strategist meets a wire cutter type of thing uh, we also want to do a podcast called Mr. Mom because 
there's a bunch of dudes that are dads for the first time or have parenting advice. And I've never heard from a guy's perspective without it being super bro-y talk about advice and things to buy and, and the do's and don'ts. And I've read all these stupid ass books about like parenting by dads. And I think they're all garbage because they're just not useful. They're always from one, someone else's perspective. And yes, I think that what we will really want to say are like, try to find some universal things or not universal things and just say, this is what I think is funny. You know, really similar to Bill's parent corner on his podcast that he does with cousin Sal. I just think there's a lot there. And so I don't know if it's going to be called Mr. Mom or not, but that's the sort of working title. And we're going to do probably a podcast on recipes called Something from Nothing, I think. And Priya is going to be really mad at me because I think that might be the title of our book too. But um, <laughs> where we make, we're all sort of doing a, a recipe club or it's going to be called Recipe Club. Anyway, I think it's hilarious, Chang, like in a pre-COVID world, meaning two weeks ago, we would have just kept all of this under our hat (laughs) and been like quietly building our podcast strategy. But like uh, here at the end of the world, (laughs) who cares? It's all out there, guys. Those are all our ideas. If you beat us to it, (laughs) you know, good on you. No, 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 no. I just realized what we just, we just let it out in the ether and we're squatting on it. And if you do it, fuck you. We (laughs) we just. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. We, we, we own all of that territory. If you're a dad out there who thought you had something to say about parenting, like, sorry guys, we just, we bought that territory. (laughs) So we're going to just have some fun. We're going to explore what that looks like. And I, I I think it's going to be very serious too. Um, potentially working on a, a project here or there, but that might do with what we're going through. But I, I really want to get viewpoints from people in the industry that are going through this. And it's not just chefs, it's people in retail. And I think more importantly, I don't want to get the usual suspects of people. You know, if there's one downside to, to the coverage, and it's been extraordinary from the food media's angle of corona epidemic, it seems to be the same same cast of characters. And I would love to know different viewpoints. In fact, like Pete Wells did a great article today about the chain reaction of restaurants going down from the purveyors and uh, the entire sort of ecosystem that surrounds restaurants. And that was a fascinating, beautiful story. And I think people need to know that kind of impact. And you know, we, we're going to talk to, I think, world-class chefs and people that are opening up their first restaurant that no one's ever heard of. And I think it's important that we document what's happening and share these stories and still do stupid things like uh, The Unwatchables <laughs> and Mr. Mom. Yeah, I, I think that this whole moment speaks to like, you know, you don't you don't, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And <laughs> yes, we're trying to do all these podcasts. So we have more time, but it's also like we're going a little stir crazy in our individual houses and, and talking to one another is helpful. But you know, speaking to what you just brought up, Chang, with that Pete Wells article, maybe this is a good place for us to start talking today. You know, our good friend Corey Lee also posted something about that trickle down or chain reaction effect that um, is going to happen. It's not just with coronavirus and shutting down restaurants and small businesses. It's it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with your local restaurant closing and and not being able to reopen. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit more about? I know you you reposted what Corey said, and and I'm sure you agree with him, but maybe you can talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I have a lot of thoughts about the stimulus package and, and, and the solidarity towards unity across all fronts on the hospitality service sector. And I couldn't be prouder of my industry and my peer group. But you mentioned Corey Lee. And if you don't know who Corey Lee is, Corey Lee is unquestionably probably the most respected and widely admired chef that you may not know, but it's still very well known. He just doesn't give a shit about doing media or doing stupid things. And uh, I would be doing exactly what he would be doing if I was as good as Corey. So uh, he's a legend. And um, I mean, I followed his career ever since he was at Lespinas. And, and, you know, he was always sort of my personal benchmark. And he's become a world-class chef operator with three restaurants with a fourth knock on wood on the way. And Corey is the very best of our business. And I really mean that. I think he represents the very best attributes you'd want any chef to develop into or any young cook. And also as a business owner and someone that's, as he's gotten older, more mature and less hard, right? Around the edges. And he's just a an amazing figure to represent this business. And, you know, he's, he's the, like the paradigm of, of what you want someone to be in this profession, representing the very best qualities. And I think the quality that it's under-admired by him is his integrity. And I think his post, which we should just read, um, I'm going to read it. And it's a picture of his dog in the empty dining room of Bennu on Hawthorne Street in San Francisco. And Bennu is a wildly important restaurant. And besides it having three mission stars, it just is unbelievable and it's so much more complicated and beautiful than people realize anyway Corey writes like so many people around the world i've been devastated by this crisis and my restaurants are not in good shape restaurants are especially vulnerable for many reasons but immediately because they're high cash businesses and employ a disproportionate amount of people for the revenues they generate understandably I've seen so many of our industry leaders eliciting support for government relief and donations. I, too, hope there will be some government aid to affected small businesses. But we must also do our part and make sure our suppliers, who are also small businesses, don't bear the brunt of our closures. I'm extremely distraught after speaking with a few suppliers today who haven't been getting paid. I operate three restaurants. I get how cash flow works. But we have to pay our suppliers and, if we must, go under in the process. When cash is tight, you have to make really tough decisions. And I've made many this past few weeks that keep me up at night. But I implore chefs and restaurateurs to prioritize paying their vendors so that we have a supply chain to come back to someday. The hard reality is we may not emerge from this as restaurant owners, and that's okay. But we have to emerge from this as a member of an industry with integrity and a future. And if that just doesn't like make you weep, um, yeah. I don't know what will. And, you know, that's a lot of vulnerability from a guy that is a ninja. And uh, to me, that's the highest form of integrity I've ever seen in this business. And, you know, we talk about more dilemmas and we talk about integrity. And I just want to define what integrity is. It's like it's the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, a moral backbone that doesn't bend or break under duress. That's important. I think everyone has integrity. It's a matter of when you compromise your integrity under moments of pressure and duress. And that's the true test of character. And 
In a kitchen, I've always defined culinary integrity as this because it's so important. Integrity in a kitchen is probably as important as mise en place, at least as a, a from a character point of view. To do something right and to make a decision that benefits everyone else but oneself, to not receive any praise, but to selflessly act in the benefit towards others. That to me is culinary integrity. And that's when not only do you have a healthy kitchen, it when integrity is like that, it makes going to work like the best time in the world. And for him to put himself in a position where, you know, when he says, if we need to go under to make the right decision, then we go under. And that's that's his life's work. Benu is as great as any restaurant. And it's just a heartbreaking thing to think about that he would be willing to put his own restaurants out of business to make sure, not that he wants to, but what matters most to Corey, because he is a student of this craft of cooking like no one else, what matters most to Corey is to ensure the future of the industry, to make sure that our supply chain is intact so that we have not just for him to go back to, but for everyone else to go back to as well. And that that selflessness, that character of selflessness, that characteristic that Corey exhibits is so powerful that I'm like, if people knew how great our leadership is across the board, yes, we are stupid in so many areas, but when it counts, you know, chefs make the best decisions under duress and he's made the most selfless decision. And I wish our real leadership that controls the government would be as selfless as Corey Lee. And I think Corey should be celebrated more. It's, again, a story that's not just happening in Corey and Bennu and his restaurants. It's happening to every operator, every small business owner, every retail store. Everyone is presented with this trolley car problem that sucks and All we want to do is make sure that no one leaves unhappy, yet everyone has to make a decision where someone's going to be hurt or unhappy. And I think that is uh, the exact opposite reason why we want to be in this business. So Corey's right, though, to be able to pay your vendors. And again, Pete Wells did a, a great job writing about just the impact it's going to have when restaurants shut down. Uh, We're going to lose our entire ecosystem that makes it all happen. And um, whether restaurants do come back, we may lose the purveyors and the artisans and the farmers that make our restaurants possible. So, you know, we sort of talked about it last week when we talked about uh, a steakhouse going. And, you know, in my mind, all the things that I take for granted, not take for granted, but like I know that I don't think a normal person knows from the linen people to the garbage to the beverage. Like there's our purveyor list is like 300 people that are at some of our restaurants, 300 different companies. And they all, in aggregate, depend on restaurants like us for them to make their living. And to me, it's a contract. It, what is very much a small business, even though we have many restaurants. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to say, Corey's situation is a situation that we're all going through. And there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, There's been a big debate. Should we be open for delivery? Should we be closed for delivery? And I don't know. There are chefs that are personally guaranteed on loans. And if they don't make their bills because the government hasn't figured out how to give us any sign of amnesty, they're going to lose everything and their house because that's what happens when you PG a loan. And you're going to do anything you can. I have unfortunately been in that situation. 
And um, it's a terrible, terrible place to be that levered. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. According to ZipRecruiter research, nearly three quarters of employers say they're finding it difficult to fill open positions. So they're taking bold steps. 68% of employers have raised their wages and 23% have increased their benefits. If you have a difficult role to fill, no matter what your industry, hire with ZipRecruiter. And now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 top job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. To try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Great Jones, a startup that makes the cookware that I use and love at home. Upgrading your kitchen tools is one of the best things you can do to improve your cooking. Yet many home cooks don't realize how important it is to replace their old pots and pans. Great Jones products are affordable and high quality. Whether you are looking for select products or want to outfit your whole kitchen with their family style set, Great Jones is a one-stop shop. Great Jones products also look as good as they work. I actually take my blue Great Jones Dutch oven, which at 145 bucks costs a lot less than others of the same quality, right from my stovetop and put it on the table. It's so easy because it looks good, it cooks good. In fact, I'm staying at my friend's place right now and his kitchen situation is in a dire need of an upgrade. I'm going to buy him a Great Jones set since he's letting me crash at his place for free. Great Jones is going to make any kitchen better. Great Jones has figured out how to make products that both look and function extremely well. To shop, go to greatjones.com and use code CHANG at checkout for $25 off orders of $75 or more. If you care about how your food tastes, you should care about your cookware. So don't forget greatjones.com and use code CHANG for $25 off orders of $75 or more. And now back to the show. I do think that something is going to come out of this. I think that, again, regardless of whether government intervenes, and I I think that they will, but I'm just making, I have to make some assumptions like they won't. I think the real estate development groups, the whole industry of real estate and landlords, (laughs) weirdly, are going to come to the rescue, at least on rent. Because here's the thing, they see quicker than the federal government that restaurants and retail and independent operators are too small to fail. Their entire business model is dependent on us. And although they make all the money, they don't make any money if we aren't in business. So weirdly, they have no choice but to help us out. And they can't just help us out for two months here, rent abatement for three months. I think it's going to have to be a minimum year to two years because this is an economic disaster like we've never seen. So they have to give us, I'm throwing out there, like 50% off rent. And maybe it gets lesser towards two years, but here's the thing. Beggars can't be choosers here. And if they tell one of their tenants, let's just say Landlord X tells us, 
you know, tenant Y that tough luck, I'm not going to give you a rent abatement for a year or two years, you're out. Well, guess what? They're never going to be replaced, ever. I mean, I think the most altruistic gestures we're ever going to see from landlords is going to happen with or without government intervention. Crazy, huh? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Their entire industry will collapse. Just like if a restaurant collapses, say goodbye to the farming system, say goodbye to fishing, all these things. Guess what? If restaurants collapse, say goodbye to real estate. And also I'd add, they have to figure out, and they're probably going to do it weirdly enough for people renting apartments and homes. They have to. So to me, the irony is this. <laughs> and again, like I could be wrong. I'm just, I have too much time to think this shit through. And this is why it's probably 100% flawed. But there's this weird irony and somewhat of a comedic twist in all of this. <laughs> the people that are going to have to help out the landlords are the bankers <laughs> from 2008. <laughs> yeah. Because the landlords lever themselves to get lower rates of money to put money up for projects. So this whole thing is now interconnected. And I think the banks have no choice but to give amnesty to the real estate people. This is all interconnected. Yeah. And that's why too small to fail is real fucking truth. It's actually more important to help us than it was the fucking banks. They let Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns die. We didn't miss a beat. (laughs) You let just one version of restaurants die out, we're doomed. So I think it's like, I'm feeling pretty confident because I'm not judging these decisions on altruism and humanity. I'm really not. I'm judging this on simply they're capitalists at heart and they want to make as much money as possible. Oh, we can't make any money anymore if we don't do the right thing. Right. I I actually weirdly believe that. And I don't know if I'm being naive, but that's what I believe. Yeah. I mean, you say the the right thing, but it's not even the right thing or wrong. Like like we were talking about earlier, you remove right and wrong from the equation. You you look at what is the best thing for the landlords and it is to provide rent abatement for the tenants. Otherwise they have nothing. Like it's not about right and wrong for them even. It's just. But it's not rent abatement. It's either. It's not even just delaying it. And like, I'm sure there are going to be fucking landlords that'd be like, well, you're going to pay me back at this amount and I'm going to get all my money plus interest after 16 months. Nobody should say yes to that. Fuck yeah. them. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm sure some motherfucking asshole is going to say, this is what you got to do. Take it or leave it. Well, you know what? Leave it. Yeah. That's the part I'm really not looking forward to is like the stories that will come out in the next six months of all the clever, evil people who used this moment to be exploitative. No, I'm saying the restaurant group needs to be more clever and more evil (laughs) to them. Yeah, you're right. No, you know, we've gotten the shit kicked out of us by them for years. This is the opportunity to be like, no, 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 no. I mean, you weirdly have the leverage. You weirdly have the leverage at this very dark moment. like. You can either help us or we have nothing to give you, basically. Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. I'll see you when the revolution happens and uh, <laughs> I'll bake you a cake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's grim. Um, what else is, What else is, have you been spending your time mulling over? Yeah. I know you're just trapped over there thinking, Chang. What I just said, what I don't know what the fuck I've been saying. How, how weird is it for you to hear this stuff? I have no idea. I haven't talked to anybody about this. <laughs> 
I, I mean, the the interconnectivity. I do picture you just with like pictures of Lehman Brothers and restaurants and and landlords on your wall with strings tied between each one of them, uh, just being like, "This was the seeds for this were planted in 2007." Uh, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it's crazy. It does make sense. I mean, obviously, everybody's situation is going to be very different, and that's like one of the complicated parts about this, right? Like. Man, you speak to three restaurant owners, and yes, they all want some form of assistance, but every single one has some different set of problems that they're they're facing in a different uphill battle. Right, and I can't answer that. I'm just trying to figure out through just figuring out like human, like how humans might make a decision, what might be most probable, and I I don't know, and Lord knows I have no fucking idea what I'm talking about, but I hope the government is going to provide us with an ample safety net and a lifeline. And if we can get the landlords to be the most altruistic versions that they've ever been with a lifeline for the government, I feel pretty good. No, 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 let me, I don't feel good. I'm like, (laughs) oh, there might be a chance for this to work out. Yeah. I mean, what is your sense? You know, obviously this occupies a lot of your waking brain, my waking brain, our peer groups, do you think that the average person is thinking or worrying about restaurants at all? I see I see these pleas every now and again on social media that, that are like, restaurants, please donate your food. I know it's hard for everybody, but we need you to donate your goods. And I'm like, I don't know that small business and, and restaurants are on people's minds right now, honestly, the general public. No, I think a lot of people don't give a shit. And fun, that's fine. Yeah. It's, you know what? I didn't care about the banking system until later when I realized, like, oh, shit. Like, if if J.P. Morgan went down or if AIG went down, like, oh, shit. That would have been real bad. I don't give a shit about AIG. Then I was like, whatever. Fuck them. Now I'm like, oh, man. Thank God they intervened. (laughs) And I think given time, people will realize, like, oh. Or even if they don't and we overreacted, fine. But I will say, if they don't, it's something they're going to be like, how did we miss that? How did we not save that? Yeah. And I think most people are like, whatever, restaurants, because they don't give a shit. They don't know the economics of a restaurant. Yeah. Fine. But again, be careful for what you wish for, because <laughs> I always joke that when it's a dystopian future and there's roving bands of marauders just roving everywhere, no one's going to fucking hurt chefs. <laughs> You do you you say that you always joke about that, but you have always joked about that long before coronavirus. Yeah, the apocalypse again. People should realize how how sick I am in the head. Yeah, before you murder me, <laughs> let me cook you, you know, dinner. This is like, yeah. What's the what's the Cormac McCarthy book? Uh, the road. Yeah, the road. The road. Before you murder me, <laughs> let me cook you some meal. Like, oh, you don't think we have anything to cook with? Just give me 30 minutes. I spent some time with your neighbor Zeppi. I'll forward you shit you've never even believed. You're sitting on food right now. I can catch you a fish. I can do all this stuff. I can preserve. I can make cheese. You oh, want to keep me around. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm just going to be like, let me write you a short story. Or edit a, a magazine article for you. Is that useful? Can I help you in that way? Uh, I'm going to tell people, like, we're together. I'm like, I don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> I'm going to tell people I'm a carpenter. Whatever, whatever it takes. <laughs> Just survive for another couple of minutes. Oh, oh my God. Um, but, like, I had planned on doing three topics. 
Yeah. The traditional pod. Can we go into them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you got? What's on your mind? So I'm staying at a friend's place. As I said, I was in a real space crunch for reasons I don't want to get into. They were all coronavirus, uh, <laughs> shrinking my world into trying to figure out where we could live because my I have family members that came to visit Hugo and they couldn't fly back and it's been a total nightmare. So we're here and it's a house and I wanted to talk about Instapot because in this kitchen they have, there's an Instapot. And I was debating like, shit, where are we going to cook rice? Because I got a bunch of Korean people with me and they eat rice three meals a day and we got we to gotta make this happen. And uh, in general, just cooking has been hard because like it's a pantry that is basically booze, bottled lemon juice that <laughs> is like shelf stable for hundreds of years. You know, capers, olives, oregano from, like, my sophomore year in college. You know, just ridiculous shit. Like, a, a box of baking soda that's never been changed. Um, it's really, like, dystopian future. That's the, that's the future. Right. Is, that's a sad future. Or every but meal here, every meal is Putinesca. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I was like, shit, I have to get stuff. All right? So I ordered a bunch of stuff. It's been really hard because I was not as prepared as I'd like because I wasn't expecting to feed six adults <laughs> uh, and one Hugo, but I have been, and it's been a lot, a lot of cooking, and uh, I have so much to say about all this stuff, but let me go back to the Instapot. I completely ignored the phenomenon, the viral hit that is the Instapot because I thought it was stupid and lame. And it turned out I was 100% right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. I know there were books and it's the hula hoop. It's the culinary hula hoop. And <laughs> it's just repackaged. It's like, we're so dumb. Some dude just repackaged a pressure cooker. Yeah. That's it. And the only thing I like about it is an electric pressure cooker because I don't like, I'm one of the few people that a normal pressure cooker that's non-electric has exploded. And it's good. Is that true? That's crazy. Yes. It was in the lab. Dan Felder, Dan Burns, we kind of tested this. And thank God the three of us were behind the wall in the dish pit because we were trying to make like a miso or something because there were a bunch of beans in it. And on the induction, we heard an explosion and shit was everywhere. And something bad would have happened had we actually been hit by this stuff. And the seal had broken off and it broke in half. The whole pot broke. It was crazy. Um, and, and like our lies flashed before our eyes. And ever since then, I was like, I'm, I will use it if I have to, but for whatever reason, because it's, a, I see an electric pressure cooker, I'm much more inclined to be like, oh, this is fine. <laughs> so in that regard, I like a pressure cooker. It's great. That's what it is. But on this feature, it's make a broth, a soup, make chili, make beans, saute. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> It, sauteing in an Instapot. It just <laughs> makes me so mad. I can't. I cannot do it. Like, oh, all of those things I just I just said, you know what's good? A pot and, a, and, and, and <laughs> cook it on a stove. Right. The Instapot is only good for pressure cooking. That's it. Yeah. And the one thing that it could redeem itself for is cooking rice. And it sucks at cooking rice. Because the pot itself is stainless steel. I think the heating element below 
that makes it a saute is too high, so it scorches the rice. And for 77 to 80 bucks, depending or 100 bucks, depending on the size of your, your pot in the instant pot, I know that not everyone can afford a $200 to $400 Japanese rice cooker, like a Zoji Roshi. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I just know it's that, the fucking one with a bunch of buttons that I don't know what the fuck they say. <laughs> and that's the one I want um, because it's unbelievable. Now, it can also do all the things that Instapot does, but it also makes beautiful rice. And it also keeps it warm. Yeah. And the keep it warm function on the Instapot is such a piece of fucking shit that I think it's a faulty. It's literally uh, the Achilles heel of the whole goddamn thing. It's so It makes me mad just thinking about it. It's like, how could they screw that up? It's obviously made cheaply because the heating element's right below it. It's not dispersed. So the rice just gets scorched. And there's no way, and this is what is important. This is the big difference between a high-end rice cooker and an Instapot. There's just like no way. <laughs> just, I'm so mad thinking about this. <laughs> a proper rice cooker has vents and ventilation to allow it to collect condensation, which is why you always allow it to collect in the back in some form or fashion. That always looks like it's growing algae two weeks later. <laughs> You know, that little cup of water. And it's important because you want to get that moisture out because the rice is already cooked and it just becomes too moist. And, you know, literally two hours later after the rice is cooked, the rice tastes like shit because it's too soggy. The Instant Pot doesn't have that feature at all. It doesn't exist. You know why? It's a pressure cooker. Yeah. (laughs) It can't saute and make rice and make chili and be a pressure cooker. Like, that's just not a possibility. I I, I mean, you know, it is a unicorn. It's a lie. There are no (laughs) fucking unicorns. I mean, it's just marketing this unicorn. I mean, look, it it will do all of those things shittily. Like, you can, it will make rice. You know what? You know what else I I could do? I could saute with the iron (laughs) that I use my clothes. I could I can cook a piece of meat and fish in my engine of my car. <laughs> right, your washing machine can also be a rice yeah. cooker if you really want it yeah. to be. I can I can dry my salads in a, a in the dryer, <laughs> my 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 wash greens. I mean, for this fucking Instapot to say that it's gonna cure fucking herpes too is like the craziest thing ever. It's like crazy. That's how people are saying it. it's like it's gonna cure cancer, some ridiculous fucking thing. The people that are Instapot fans. Are like I feel like I'm Glenn Beck or something. It's driving me crazy talking about this. <laughs> you oh. are fighting a conspiracy against America. I uh, I agree, and I will say I will admit to you one of the great. I you know like you, I spent a lot of years being ashamed of like or afraid of bringing friends over to my parents' house to eat just because my friends were white and we're not. But um, I got over that. But I've recently become embarrassed again. And I have yelled at my mom about this. They use an Instapot to cook their rice. And it's like, what, what? kind of self-respect? I've had this conversation, Chang, so many times. And every time I open it, and it's just like mushy, overcooked rice with like a scorched bottom. Like, I'm just so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. You know what is more probable to me than that actually being truthful? <laughs> I'm not denying that's happening. But... This is what I'm. This is how literally you know how my brain works. You what I find immediately what is more probable than your mother allowing this to happen because she's a great cook. Yeah. What is more probable is that two things: we're in a computer simulation, or two, 
or two, and that's the glitch in the system, literally the one glitch in the system, or two, this is actually Westworld present day, and your mom's a fucking robot. <laughs> in either scenario, I need to destroy her, uh, just to be sure. You cannot. I'm sorry. Dude, I'm, I'm so, sorry. That's I know, so man. insane. Listen, preaching of the choir here. I've been, I'm with you on this thing, and I'm so embarrassed. I just feel like I'm so embarrassed by it, by my mom's Instapot. I think we need to come up with, like, we need to buy a whole shit ton of used dryers and refurbish them and say <laughs> it's the new salad spinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we got to do. And we'll sell it for 785 bucks. Right, right. It's just like it has settings it that are crisper. just like permanent yeah. press. Uh, <laughs> bitter greens, yeah. butter lettuce. That's what that's what these fucking people did with the Instapot. It's crazy to me. You know what it really does? It makes chili really fucking good. Yeah, I'm sure. It makes beans really fucking good. You know what else does that? A $19 pressure cooker. Yeah. It's fucking insane to me. Ooh, no. it's got fucking digital buttons. I'm so excited for Isaac to send us ads for this week and just have Instapot on there. <laughs> just feel like, oops. <laughs> I'm going to really make me mad. And granted, I, I, I need to be mad about something else other than fucking Trump and the federal government. But man, I was just like, and immediately the, my, my other reaction was, I am jealous that I didn't come up with this marketing scheme. Oh my God. That's that's the underlying thing here completely is I wish that we had come up with the Instapot. Obviously, this is all a place of jealousy. And I no doubt that people that might hear this podcast are going to be so pissed. And anyone in their right minds that gets upset about this, I'm going to treat them like they're flat earther. You know, I won't go as far as they're the anti-vaccination people, but I'm going to basically say like, so you don't, I'm going to treat them the same way I would treat someone that's ignorant to believe that the world is flat. If they're like upset that I'm making fun of the Instapot. It's so insane. Like all the data is on my side. The only thing that they're going to say is I like it. Oh, <laughs> support it. Yeah. Oh, you created an Instapot club and you have 70,000 members. Like you basically created a cult. You created a cult on lies. Yeah. I mean, there are, um, I am sure, a ton of people who listen to your podcast who have Instapots. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm 100% sure of that. But it's silly on so many levels. It's like you don't, you just don't, I mean, like, you just don't need it, right? Like, you no. just don't need this thing. And unless you have infinite counter space, like, why would you have this, like, Death Star sitting on your counter? Yeah, listen, we got to save this for uh, I'm Your Major Domo or whatever we call this podcast. There's so many things that have me fired up about home cooking and home kitchen stuff, man. Like, I'm not going to go down this road. Not yet. We got we to save some stuff. Before we go on, let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Buckley Dog Food. We all know that good food comes from good ingredients, and the same applies to pet food. That's why Buckley Dog Food is all about quality, real ingredients. Because my dog, Sevy, he's just a food snob and it drives me crazy, but it's okay because Buckley takes care of the situation. Their food only contains fresh meat and whole ingredients and never any rendered meat meals, which are the cheap way many pet foods spike protein levels in their food. It's pretty nasty. 
Meat meals can contain terrible stuff, including meat from diseased animals, and they can lower your dog's ability to digest the protein and get the nutrients they need. But Buckley's dry recipe has an average protein digestibility of over 90%, while the industry average hovers around 70%. Buckley's recipes are preferred five to one because they don't have any rendered meat meals, byproducts, or filler ingredients, just fresh meat and whole ingredients. And we're gonna continue to buy Buckley dog food for my dog, go to buckleypet.com slash Chang. That's buckleypet.com slash Chang and use the code Chang for 20% off your first order. Great deal. And learn about their dog food subscriptions. That's B-U-C-K-L-E-Y-P-E-T.com slash Chang and use the code Chang, C-H-A-N-G for 20% off buckleypet.com slash Chang. Today's show is also brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to make barbecue from the great master Aaron Franklin. You can learn French cuisine from Thomas Keller. You can learn how to make Mexican cuisine now from Gabriel Camara. And you can learn about cross-disciplinary things. In fact, I think Anna Wintour is on it right now from Vogue. I'm always interested about what's on her mind. With over 75 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, Apple TV, or Amazon Fire TV. Each class is broken out into individual lessons and downloadable materials, all of which you can explore at your own pace. Lessons are about 10 to 15 minutes in length, so they can fit into your busy schedule. Single classes are $90, and the all-access is $180 a year. The all-access pass is a great deal, guys. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a Dave Chang Show listener, you'll get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang. That's masterclass.com slash Chang for 15% off masterclass. And now, back to the show. All right, we talked enough about fucking Instapot. Um, the other things that happen is, you know, I'm trying to, like, build up a pantry because I think we're going to be here a couple weeks. And um, I tried, like, hell to, to get all these things that are delicious to me because I got to work with nothing. So I bought a giant bag of hondashi. I bought dashi da. And hondashi, if you don't know, that's, you know, I cook at home. I cook a lot with dashi or versions of dashi because Korean culture, they make their version of dashi with anchovies and, 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 and seaweed and kelp and all these things. But hondashi is just so fucking good in and of itself. But there's a big difference between home cooking and restaurant cooking. And I just needed something that was going to be easy, add water, done. I also bought dashi da, which is a Korean version of a beef bouillon. I Went to a Mexican store that one of those store amazing stores that sell food up front is a grocery store in the back. And I bought all this Goya seasoning stuff and I bought Noor. I literally have every kind of concentrate bouillon type thing possible. And you know what? I don't fucking care what anyone says. It's like, I don't have time to like make this. I don't have the ingredients, number two. And I would like to have flavors that are delicious and instant. And, you know, if I had the time and the resources, I would, but I don't even have the ingredients. And there's a big difference between restaurant cooking and home cooking. And when I made spaghetti, I made a red sauce. I literally had no ingredients. I had a can of tomatoes and I used some of the dried oregano from 1995 <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the kitchen. That's a good vintage, great vintage of oregano. Yeah. 
I put in some sugar packets from like <laughs> to go coffee. And, you know, I was just like, I have family members. I want to make something delicious and I'm not going to have an excuse. And I also found the Nor chicken bouillon cubes. And I was like, okay, so I have two options. I can not use this and try to make this authentic, or I can add this and know that it's going to make it more delicious. But I'm not making authentic, and people are going to think I'm a hack-ass motherfucker. I don't give a shit. I'm trying to make something delicious for my family of six adults and one Hugo. Hugo, I made something else. And that's what happened. And, like, I posted on Instagram, and, like, there were a few comments about, like, how dare you make chicken bouillon, how you use that. And the other comments were, like, you're using Barilla pasta? Like, that's such garbage. (laughs) And I was just like, we're in a crisis here. It's hard to get food, and you're going to judge now? Like, shut the fuck up. I was so pissed. And I think that, like, it made me think about, you know, two things. And I've been in a, in a weird place, obviously, uh, since I talked to my mom last week, and it's been something I think daily, when she basically compared this as relatively, it sucks, but it's not as bad as bodies being filled with holes and explosions and war-torn countryside in the in the Korean War that she lived through. You know, and, and, and I've told you these stories with my grandparents and basically my dad's mom was really not nice and she smelled like Korean medicine, so we called her Smelly Hamani. Uh, and we weren't nice to her in return, my brothers and I. <laughs> and, you know, her, she lived with us when I was like seven and she lived with us a whole year and, and, and then she passed when I was eight. But like... She made terrible food, and where my dad grew up was basically literally on the border of North Korea and what is now China and North Korea. And, you know, she was already, the family was impoverished before the Korean War, so my dad literally had nothing. And she lived a hard, like a hard life, so her entire life was about survival. She gets to America, she sees these punk-ass kids that are, like, eating fruit roll-ups and not giving a shit, and here she is. Literally, she would preserve anything she could. And she did all kinds of vegetables. But the biggest thing was like scallions. And she'd get the scallions cut down to yay big with the root. And then she would, all throughout the house, it would seem there were like cups of scallions growing. And other vegetables propped up with toothpicks. I'll never forget that, how embarrassing that was. And I was embarrassed because my brothers that were older than me would bring their friends over. And their friends would be like, what the fuck? And... I was just like, why can't she be like the other grandma, my mom's mom, who was the grandma that we loved because she doted on us and spoiled us and she was an amazing cook. And the reality was like, it was important that she gave us the traditional love that I feel like the Western world most associates with grandparents and such. And I had this anomaly of a grandma that was literally like, she ate nails for breakfast. And it's taken me a long time to reconcile this. And it was weird because I felt like I had nostalgia pills from the Watchmen when I was in this moment with the epidemic. And then I saw my mother-in-law saving all the scallion ends and saving them and putting them in a cut up plastic bottle. And immediately like I got welled up and I had to like cry. Cause I was like, fuck, like I'm such a wuss. And I was so ungrateful and, yeah. Immediately, I understood my immaturity, and there was no way for me to know. But, and I had come to terms with a lot of these emotions anyway, but they felt more real because I was able to like connect with that nostalgia, and I was able to be more in her shoes than I could ever before, even though that I'm not in war torn Korea. 
And it, it hit me like a ton of bricks and it made me realize, you know, this is an important lesson. I hope I never forget it. And more importantly, I hope that it makes me reevaluate what's important. I just think being able to cook with limited resources has made me appreciate yeah. being pragmatic a lot more and finding something that is more useful than not. And so much of food is categorizing and labeling and judging what's best. This is not good enough or whatever. And I think if anything, it's about making me realize how to increase my empathy to understand situations. And, you know, maybe I, I, I couldn't get Parmesan and add umami in a traditional way because I didn't have the money yeah. to do it. Maybe I am making this because I literally didn't know how to do it because no one taught me. Or maybe I'm making it this way because I'm out of time and I know how to do it, but my son's sick and my daughter's also ill and my babysitter didn't show up. It's like we need to be way less judgmental, particularly within food, because what you cook and what you work with does not actually indicate any relevance to any situation. Yeah. And I just feel somehow, and I need to figure out how to articulate it better, is that this is an opportunity for us to reevaluate how we look at food, how we think about food, and to maybe not be so worried about being cool, not be so worried about being a trendsetter. What's most important is your, your personal goal for whoever you're making that food for, which for me right now, and I think it should be for me forever, is not so different than what we talked about, Ugly Delicious, to nourish someone to feed someone something so delicious that it gives them happiness and joy. And I don't care about anything else. And not all restaurants need to be that way, but it made me think like, how stupid is it to square off a duck breast so it's perfect rectangle? <laughs> you know, there, I'm not saying restaurants shouldn't do that. I mean, just for me, and I think it's something that we need to cherish a little bit more of. And I think this is a new subsect of like, I think ugly, delicious thinking, but you know, and it's just like, it's particularly now more than ever. It's so dumb. It's so fucking stupid to me. Like we need to be feeding people wholesome goodness, not perfection. And I still maintain it's got the intent has to be perfect. Even though on, on the physical appearance, it may look imperfect and improper. Yeah. But if anything, we need to increase our empathy more than ever. Yeah. And all of this being said, I don't know if this makes any sense because my mind's been going crazy all cooped up here, is it doesn't mean that I don't want to make proper dashi or proper tomato sauce or pasta, right? Like if I had flour, I'd probably make it from scratch, but I don't have fucking flour. So it's like, it makes me appreciate the moments that I will make it right. And I do have the proper technique and I do have the mm -hmm. ingredients and I'm excited about that. It's getting me excited about the moments where it is going to be done well and to really appreciate the moment. And I know it's something you and I have talked about a lot is, you know, weirdly the suffering allows us to reboot and to appreciate the things that we actually have instead of complaining about the things that we don't have. Mm -hmm. There, that's my <laughs> incoherent rambling spiel. No, I got started with uh, scallions. <laughs> it was a remarkable journey just to be a part of, to go from uh, bullion cubes to suffering, but look, yeah. you're right. I mean, also so much food and and so many so many cuisines were born of those moments that your grandparents went through, right? Like the war produced so much necessity 
which yeah. led to this, these moments. And it's crazy. I know you're not saying that, you know, what we're experiencing right now is anything bears any resemblance to, to what your grandparents went to, but you connected to them in this moment of necessity. Like the yeah, truth is, but it's not just grandparents, dude. And I know you like one of my best meals I ever had was with Andrea Petrini in Milan. And it was, uh, I don't remember the name. This was that 11 years ago. And it was, white truffle season, like peak white truffle season. And I've never had white truffles this epic and pungent. And it's just dawning on me now that like, this may never happen again, (laughs) not for a few years, you know, like, but it's not about the story of truffles. It was the fact that she was obliterated. The last course of this ridiculously like delicious meal was gorgonzola dolce and a giant chunk of it. And she brings out another white truffle and she obliterates it on it. And I was just like, what a waste. Like, I know. Like, I cook with white truffles all the time. I'm an expert. And my immediate reaction is like, that's stupid. Like, you you can't. Dude, that's so pungent, this blue cheese thing with this delicate thing. And I was like, I tasted it. And I was like, oh, my God. What kind of alchemy is this? This is the best thing I've ever tasted in my life. And it dawned on me I just never had a truffle that good that was so pungent. That was actually, it was like crossing the streams in Ghostbusters. It was unbelievable. And then we, we through Andy, was just like, talking and I was asking all these questions of how she came up with this dish. And, and I was like, aren't you weird? Like you're just so generous with the white truffle. And she's like, I don't care about white truffles. You know, I grew up and a potato was more important to me and is actually still more important to me. That's incredible. You know, like when you're hungry, a potato is going to be more important to you than a truffle. And she's like, it's no different than the old adage of like a, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but like she literally has a different point of view. She's like, truffles are potatoes to her. <laughs> you know, like how we would view a potato, that's how she views a truffle. And it's just like, it was such a weird mind fuck. And I think about all these other things that have happened. And you, I'm sure, have these moments of foods that, you know, like, wait, like, why did that happen that way? Why, why does my grandmother, like my mom's mom, she would baked potatoes in a fire in the fireplace and she would open it up very carefully and put butter Hmm. and not salt sugar. And I was always like, why would she do that? And I learned later from my sister, it was like sugar was such a luxury for her. Hmm. And that's how they celebrated was potatoes and sugar and butter. And I'm like, you know what? I never want to make that, but that's a beautiful thing for her. Yeah. And we got to get away from like this monolithic, this is what's good. This is the best, the top 10, whatever. And I think in this new world, how irrelevant all that shit is. The Michelin guy, the top 50, James Beard Awards, who gives a fucking shit about that now? Truly. And I'm not, I don't want it to go away, right? There's, this is a whole ecosystem in and of itself, but it's like, it just doesn't seem that important anymore. Or food writing in general, it's like, we have an opportunity to really, I think, get to the core of what's important in food. And I'm still trying to discover what that is, even though we do it all the time. But I'll tell you what I think it's not. It's not doing those stupid overhead videos like Tasty where someone barbecues pork shoulder and they shred it and they make a quesadilla and then they dip the quesadilla in batter and they deep fry (laughs) it and then they turn it into a pizza and then they deep fry that and they turn it into a donut. It's like... How dumb is that now? <laughs> I think the I think the thing that you're getting at, Ching, is that hopefully, you know, so like right now we're in a world of why not? 
why not make a quesadilla pizza? And maybe, hopefully, we're entering a place where it's, why? Why we're eating something? Why are you making it that? Why is it this way? As opposed to, why not, right? Exactly. And you know, the interesting thing is that I think talking to Roberta Smith and Jerry Saltz made me see it this way, is that we need to look at food actually like art and how they view art. Mm-hmm. And that everything is contemporary and meaningful to someone. And that what they do is they try to spend, I mean, I don't know, but just talking to them on this podcast, they try to imagine how and why a piece of art might be meaningful to someone in a certain way. And then they think why this piece of art might be nauseating to another person in another way. And again, it's it's like, it takes a lot of time to think that way. And here's the beautiful thing we have right now, time. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can recalibrate that and get a little bit of that humanity back. I, I don't know, but it just seems to me like it's a better way to view the world and to treat someone else over food. I mean, I know this is a crazy time and there's a lot of uncertainty and suffering in the world, but like there's also this a little bit of possibility in the air, right, of of this chance to reassess while we're all stuck in our individual worlds and and try to go out when we're allowed to and, and do things a little differently and better. I, I mean, I know I'm, I'm feeling that in between all of the kind of fear and anxiety, a little bit of possibility. I'm sure you are too. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what, you know, when we get back open and we talked about it last week, we're, we're going to need to tell these stories. We're going to need to commune over food and it's about creating community and, um, it's not about the smoke and mirrors. I think it's about making the intent perfect, not the yeah. food perfect. And it's bringing the substance back to why and how we eat and what we cook. And again, like I'm not saying that I don't want to eat at Arpege or go to Sushi Saito. Of course I do. But I'm saying like maybe there's got to be less restaurants like that and more restaurants of just being like, welcome to my restaurant. I'm going to treat you like you're yeah. a guest in my home. You know, like, I'm going to give you a home-cooked meal, whatever that might be. Yeah. What's your third thing, Dave? Uh, I was going to talk about delivery. And you know what? We'll just save it for next week, man. Yeah. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) I don't know if this is good, man. Like, talking this way, I think people get to see just how fucking crazy I am and you are. I mean, I was I was serious earlier though, man. Like we would have kept all this stuff under our hats and rolled it out and had this plan, but like it's like you always say, man. Like what is the what is the point? Like you get we get one shot. Like put it out there, and you know what's the worst that happens? People hate us. It's Chris's fault. <laughs> anyway, I like doing this. Where I'm at, the Wi-Fi is really shitty right now. We'll try to get a podcast later this week. Yeah, who do we want to get to do? Um, I think we should take this opportunity to call out our our old buddy, Rachel Kong, and uh, <laughs> see if she'll join us on this thing. You, we've been talking about bringing Rachel from Lucky Peach oh, back in. Rachel, and- sh- yeah, but you know what? She's too big time now. She's got a best-selling <laughs> book that's been option for a movie. She doesn't have time for fucking schmucks like us. I know. She forgot about where she came from. She's changed, man. She changed. She's changed. Goodbye, vitamin money. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to try to pull in some old friends here and get them to uh, <laughs> join us. Well, Rachel, if you would be so kind to stoop down to this podcast, we'd be so honored to have you. <laughs> Hi, Rachie. 
We promise our listeners that they will buy 20,000 copies of Goodbye Vitamins. Yep. Yep. Um, all right. Take us home here, Chang. Uh, give us five stars because we want a good rating. Simple as that. <laughs> and and though I will say what, one thing is the Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com. Please send the, keep on sending those questions in. But what we want is start sending culinary questions in, recipes, things that you want to cook at home because – you know, one of these offshoots is going to be really dedicated to the culinary endeavors of a home cook and how to make it better and what's useful and what's not useful and what recipes are stupid. So we'd love to know, and I'm going to try my best to let it all out there and to put it on social media and whatnot. But in addition to your questions, like make a list of things that you would want to know and how to make or whatever, like we'll, we'll, we'll try to do it that way too. Anyway, um, anything you want to add, Chris? No, I mean, I, we, we've, I've let that uh, Ask Dave account get a little bit um, backed up here in the COVID life. Oh, yeah, we got a ma- we can do, we're probably going to do a giant mailbag. We got to do a huge exciting. mailbag. Yeah, we got to do a huge mailbag episode. So we got, we got plenty of work ahead of us, and um, we'll try to keep people entertained here at the, uh, in quarantine. Yeah, 